the second person of the Trinity taking on flesh and being born of a virgin. We recognize the message of extraordinary birth as a thread through Scripture that has held out hope for the generations of those who awaited the coming of the Messiah. Lord, you, by the power of your miraculous hand, spoke life out of a dead womb, and Sarai, soon to be Sarah, eventually gives birth to Isaac, the covenant son. Once again, you quicken the womb of many through the ages, Lord Jesus, to hold out hope according to that same lineage that one day a son would be born. That would be extraordinary indeed and will hold out hope for the nation. Hannah, the barren one, gave praise upon the answer to her prayer and praying on behalf, Lord Jesus, of the worship of one to come, another young maiden, Mary, who herself gave songs of praise upon the extraordinary conception that she experienced by the power of the Spirit of God. Leading up to that moment in time, the fullness of time, the advent of Christ, the one and only Savior of mankind. And now we are here because, Lord, you have worked an extraordinary birth in each one of the believing hearts in this room today. We are born again according to the Spirit and the work of your resurrecting power. You have saved us from the death of sin and given us life in Christ because he was born and died. So we are reborn according to his gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit unto newness of life. Lord, as we consider these truths and the scriptures which proclaim them today, I pray that they would work themselves deeper into our understanding and then work out more profoundly in our testimony and unto you in worship. That your name might be advanced, your kingdom would go forth, your people would be equipped and the glory of that first announcement by the angels over Bethlehem would be on the lips and the hearts of your people as we continue to proclaim to the world salvation in Christ alone. Open our ears to hear your scriptures this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise the Lord. What a great opportunity the kindness of the Lord has granted to us in gathering us in the name of His Son, Jesus, and giving to us His scriptures to consider today in their fullness. And we do so by touching upon a theme that we've opened for our Advent season. This theme is the significance of incarnation events magnified by cross-references in scripture. Our primary cross-reference this morning will be Isaiah 61, 1 through 9. So as you're able, turn there with me. In a moment, we'll stand for the reading of God's Word. The title of this morning's sermon is Melchizedek Advent. We will find in the course of this message from a unique document that was discovered in a cave in Quamran, among the other Dead Sea Scrolls, that there was a contingency of people at least represented by that community that were awaiting a Messiah figure. They identified him as the Melchizedek to come. And the title of the scroll 11Q13 is The Coming of Melchizedek. And in a kind of interesting twist and to illustrate the sufficiency of the Old Testament scriptures when exegeted to give hope of a significant Messiah, we will touch upon that scroll several times to illustrate the power of God's word giving hope for believers that lived before the coming of Jesus Christ. Melchizedek Advent, those who awaited his arrival. The aim of this morning's message is to inspire worship, worship in us as people given the prophecies and the fulfillment of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. 
With that introduction, as you're able, would you stand out of reverence for God's Word? And listen, as the Word of God is proclaimed to you today, this is the infallible and errant truth of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 61, verses 1 through 9. Here is God's Word. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of, instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Verse 4, they shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall, shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. You shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in, the glory, in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. For I, the Lord, love justice. Verse 8, I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them the recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Finally, verse 9, their offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them, that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. This is the word of God. You may be seated. What events were prophesied so long ago, centuries before Jesus came, in this prophet's words, in his songs and poetry as he wrote? And what would they look like when they came true? The Bible answers these questions, and there will be two primary references that we'll go back and forth with in this message. The first is what we just read, Isaiah 61, 1-9, and the second are selections from Luke chapter 4. Luke, the gospel author, records the fulfillment of these texts in the New Testament. So in our reference, or let me reference again our Advent theme, the significance of incarnation, the coming of Jesus, taking on flesh, being born of a woman, though he forever was glorified prior to as the second person of the Trinity. That is our theme, the significance of incarnation events magnified from scriptural cross-references, scriptural references like Isaiah 61, 1-9. Passages like this illustrate the prophetic weight of Old, Testament, of Old Testament scripture, which anticipated the unique nature of the Messiah to come. And today, I've done something a little unique for this message as well. I've, first of all, I organized a commentary, an ancient commentary that was written during the intertestamental period according to three major themes. And I borrowed this outline to uh, preach or to organize Isaiah 61 and its fulfillment in Luke chapter 4. So today's message, for intents and purposes, borrows an outline from fragments of intertestamental commentary found with the other, as I mentioned before, Dead Sea Scrolls and the Quamran excavations of the last century. Presumably written some years before the birth of Christ, these ancient scholars, the community was established around 300 B.C., near as we can tell, 
survived until its destruction by the Romans in A.D. 68. So before the birth of Christ, these ancient scholars drew conclusions about the coming, if you will, Melchizedekian Savior from passages like Isaiah 61 today. We'll read from this scroll, 11Q13, as it is identified in the archaeological record. And as we read, we'll find an ancient sermon on Isaiah 61, I submit. It really is an incredible message. It is not the Bible, it is not canon, but it is commentary and hopeful conclusions drawn from legitimate biblical exegesis in the time between the Testaments. This scroll, 11Q13, is identified with this title, quote, the coming of Melchizedek. That could be, if you will, the title of this ancient sermon written down. Provides a window into the insights of those who waited the covenant promises of old and what they were looking for based upon their understanding, their exegesis, or their careful study of the Bible that they had in hand, the Old Testament scriptures. And along these lines, Melchizedek appears in ancient messianic scholarship as a prophetic icon, and rightly so. Psalm 110 was our worship text, and it prophesied of a priest king to come who would be according to the order of Melchizedek. Whatever could that mean? Well, the New Testament expands, and in Hebrews, we won't get there today, but chapter 7 and other passages, we see how Jesus fulfilled that prophecy as well, a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Thus, this, uh, I, this uh, reference to this prophetic icon, Melchizedek, is rightly so, uh, is rightly referenced in this, uh, the text of this scroll that we'll read from today. And it refers to an Old Testament priest-king that was a forerunner of the anointed Christ. It first appears in Genesis 14. Today we behold the fulfillment in the Gospels of ancient believers' hopes that were based upon the covenant assurances that inspired them when they read the prophets of old, like Isaiah and the writings of Moses, which recorded the first instance of Melchizedek appearing on the landscape of history. So today we have the vantage point of living on the other side of the incarnation. So my prayer and hope and purpose in preaching is that our worship and our rejoicing, our joy and our faith would increase even more now that we live on the other side of incarnation history. So today we'll hear a sermon, if you will, from pre-incarnation history, even as I attempt to give you a sermon in post-incarnation history, the perspective of glory given the fact that Jesus has come and fulfilled passages like Isaiah 61 and prefigurings like Melchizedek. So let me give you a brief outline and we'll get into it this morning. The heading is this, the coming Savior or the coming Melchizedek, you could say, will be recognized according to four things. These are drawn from Isaiah 61 and they're my summary of the major points of this ancient sermon we, that I keep referencing. Number one, redemption. The coming Savior will be recognized by His redemption, signaled by the phrase, the year of Jubilee. Secondly, He will be recognized by His reckoning, signaled by the phrase, the day of vengeance. Thirdly, He will be recognized by His anointing, signaled by the phrase, the year of the Lord's favor. And finally, He will be recognized by revelation. This revelation brings in the inauguration of a new covenant age. So it's the message 
and the fulfillment of a new covenant age. So this is, how, this is what the ancients were looking for when they read the scriptures and wrote about what to expect when Christ would come. First of all, they were looking for a redeemer. The coming Melchizedek will be recognized by his redemption. Isaiah 61.1, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Who is speaking? The prophet is channeling, if you will, the voice of the Messiah. He's speaking in what you might call the messianic first person. He's speaking with the voice of Christ himself. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, he speaks prophetically. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, he has sent me to do what? To bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. This was an ancient prophecy, hundreds of years before Christ would come. And it guaranteed that the Messiah, you could recognize him, you will know when he appears, when he begins to do a mighty work of redemption, to purchase back a people once captive, to bind up hearts once broken, to heal that which was lost and broken and uh, corrupted, especially due to the curse. This language continues into verse 2. He will proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. And in verse 3, to grant to those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. After this happens, there's a prophetic response recorded as well in Isaiah 61. When Zion, the people of God, experience this redemption, what will they say? Verse 10 says this, records this. I will rejoice greatly in the Lord, the voice of Zion, if you will. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. All of this is redemptive language and beautiful prophecy and poetic picture. When the Messiah comes, you can expect something. Those who are lost and captive to their sin who are condemned to hell in judgment, and rightfully so because of their breaking of God's holy law. As they repent and turn to the Lord, they will experience not the Lord's vengeance, which will come upon his enemies, but instead the year of the Lord's favor, which will visit his redeemed. On this day, those who once mourned will now be comforted by, indeed, we come to find the presence of the Holy Spirit himself and dwelling all the blood bought. Those who were once... Uh, characterized by ashes, that is, their identity and their habitation was marked by destruction, by fire, and deservedly so. Those who once related more to Sodom, now in their repentance, receive a beautiful headdress, which is a picture of dignity and of standing and a restoration of one, once, what once was lost. A identity with Christ, a glorification, if you will, being exalted and lifted up with Him. What once was characterized by mourning our life and what we had to look forward to, nothing but despair on the horizon of eternity, has been exchanged for the oil of gladness, oil that soothing balm rubbed into the wounds of our fatal and mortal sin, brings resurrection life and gladness and joy. As the redeemed now praise the Lord, 
and shout and rejoice because their soul has exalted in the Lord and they have received his clothing, his garments of salvation. Furthermore, those who are once of faint spirit now will be called oaks of righteousness, firmly planted, glorifying the Lord. And these oaks that are spoken of here are not like the trees that fell down this week. The snow stuck, you know, many of the trees, maybe perhaps in your yard or certainly some branches, didn't survive the test of these early winter snows. And as that weight builds up, pretty soon there's a crack and snap, and then white pine branches are strewn about and the power goes out and so forth. Think of the opposite of a tree that's vulnerable and weak. Think of a tree that stands no matter how hard the wind blows. Think of a tree whose trunk you could bore in for, you know, a few feet and count the rings and figure out it has survived many, many, many such storms. This is the picture of those, the stability, the assurance, the source of life, the fruit, and the perseverance who have been redeemed. So this is how you will recognize the Messiah. He will come bearing this year of Jubilee promise, if you will. This was prophesied, as we see in these verses, Isaiah 61, 1 through 3, and verse 10. No, that's a prophecy of redemption. Now, let me give you an interpretation of this prophecy. And this is a quote from that scroll I've been referencing. <clears throat> Here we have, in the coming of Melchizedek, the following insights from an ancient text written sometime, presumably, before the coming of Christ by scholars who poured over Isaiah 61 and thus concluded, quote, And concerning what Scripture says, in this year of Jubilee, you shall return everyone to your property. Leviticus 25, 13. And what is also written, quote, And this is the manner of the remission. Every creditor shall remit the claim that is held against a neighbor, not exacting it of a neighbor who is a member of the community, because God's remission has been proclaimed. Deuteronomy 15, 2. Then the author goes on, The interpretation is that it applies to the last days and concerns the captives, just as Isaiah said, listen, to proclaim the jubilee to the captives. That's Isaiah 61.1, which we just read. Just as, and from the inheritance of Melchizedek, from Melchizedek, who will return them to what is rightfully theirs, he will proclaim to them the jubilee, therefore releasing them from the debt of all their sins. He shall proclaim this decree in the first week of the jubilee period, which follows nine jubilee periods. Then the day of atonement shall follow after the tenth jubilee period when he shall atone for all the sons of light and the people who are predestined to Melchizedek upon them. For this is the time decreed for the year of Melchizedek's favor. Close quote. Isn't that a beautiful take interpretation of the hope that Isaiah 61 holds out and even the hope of the typological purpose of the law? In Leviticus 25, 13, as the author of that sermon, that brief snippet of a message which we assume predated Christ, as he's writing and proclaiming of the truth of Jesus to come, calling him Melchizedek, the fulfillment of that Old Testament prophetic picture, he not only references our text, which is his primary one, I suggest, Isaiah 61, but additional references as well, both implicitly and explicitly. Uh, Genesis 14, 17 through 20 comes to mind. Without time to turn there, that's where Melchizedek 
is given a tithe by Abraham himself. A mysterious and shadowy figure in some ways, but we know a few things about him. In one sense, he was greater than Abraham. Abraham deferred to him with his tithe. And in another sense, there was this feast of celebration upon a great deliverance that had been experienced by the people of God. If you remember what we called way back when we were preaching on this, the Keterlamer Coalition, a group of kings led by this king of the north gathered together and successfully overthrew Sodom and took among the other captives Abraham's nephew, Lot. So Abraham, you know, decides that he's going to declare war on five nations. And with a few hundred guys, as far as we can tell, his best uh, trained fighting men, he goes on this ridiculous mission, I'm sure military strategists would, you, would tell you, to reclaim his lost relative. He's successful. Why? Because the Lord uh, answers his prayer and helps him. And so in worship to the Lord, upon this miraculous victory, he offers a tithe and celebrates that uh, release from captivity of him, of his uh, relatives uh, within a place called Salem, of which Melchizedek was, was both king and priest. What an interesting event. Whatever could it mean? Well, as the ancient scholars were going over passages like this, they assumed at least the following. They looked for another Melchizedek to come, an ultimate deliverer. A deliverer who had set them free, not just from the captivity that Lot experienced, not just from the captivity of the Syrians, the Babylonians, and the Egyptians, but for those who truly understood the teachings of Scripture, who had set them free from the captivity of sin itself. They were looking for a Melchizedek figure inasmuch as he would be greater than Abraham. Abraham, the celebrated hero of Jewish religion, you know, all those years, well, there was one greater still. And the scriptures themselves held out prophetically and in this picture that there was a Messiah who was not limited like Abraham was, but he was more. In his office, he was not just a king, he was not just a priest, but filled both offices. So the ancients were looking, the believers, I suggest, of old were looking for one who is an ultimate deliverer, greater than Abraham, a priest king, and mysteriously had both divine and human qualities would bring the consummate year of jubilee, the author of this ancient servant asks. That is fulfilling the picture of Leviticus 23, 13, which gave instructions for the people to release their neighbor from debts. When will the great king come? When will the great priest come and release us from the debt of our sins and proclaim the highest, glory, most glorious and consummate year of jubilee of, of all? And they understood from Isaiah 61, Whoever he was, they would recognize him by his redemption. These words were fulfilled in Luke chapter 4. Turn with me to that passage, if you would. Again, just following our kind of back and forth. This is a direct, Jesus, in the early days of his ministry, as recorded by Luke, cites this passage, Isaiah 61, directly. Perhaps you remember this moment. Verse 16, Luke 4. And he came, up to Nazareth, he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, as was his custom. He went to the synagogue on a Sabbath day and he stood up and read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, quote, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. This is Jesus speaking. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. 
He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Glory be to God. Melchizedek has come. That which Isaiah prophesied, he who Isaiah prophesied was here. And he identified himself as call his ministry by the very words the prophet had spoken. In Luke 4, 16 through 21, we can now with perhaps greater context better understand the, astonishments of the, the astonishment of the crowds given the authority and the context of Jesus' claims. How did the people react? Verse 21, he began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing after he had rolled up the scroll and handed it back to the attendant. Verse 22, And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? He goes on to condemn some of their cynicism, their skepticism, and unbelief. Nevertheless, verse 32, And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. This was, and rightly so after all, in his redemption, his announcement of the fulfillment of the prophet's words, this was the coming Savior, Melchizedek, the priest king who will be recognized by his power to redeem and has spoken as much with authority referencing the scriptures of old. It makes sense why in Jesus' day, just as today, Jesus Christ, the Melchizedek who has come, if you will, remains the, and will always, remain the most polarizing figure in all of history. Polarizing meaning he comes as a sword to divide those who are with him and accept him as the fulfillment of Isaiah 61, the Redeemer, Savior, and Judge, the priest, king, and prophet who has come, or those who simply ignore or dismiss in their rebellious heart, put their eyes or their hand over their eyes, refuse to hear the testimony of Scripture, that day of reckoning will come. We'll speak of that in a moment. But truth be known, in the depths of the heart of everyone who dismisses the word of Jesus Christ is the heart of a wicked rebel who is unbelieving. And in his animosity, he worships himself and he, and he finds it offensive that we would organize our calendar around the incarnation. Yeah, I don't use B.C., I use B.C. BCE. I don't use BC. I use before the common era. I don't use, I, you know, I think that's offensive. And, you know, Christians don't have a claim on history. I use CE, common era. Christians don't have a claim on history, but you better believe Jesus Christ does. Jesus Christ is the author of history. He is the author of creation. He holds the cosmos together by the word of his power. And he, because of his incarnate work, intervened at the fullness of time to provide the only way for a sinner, all born in Adam under the condemnation of their wickedness, deserving hell itself, the only way a sinner can be saved. So you better believe that Jesus Christ is the author of history. And upon that day, at the fullness of time, when he was born of a woman, the fullness of what the prophets of old spoke was a reality. And those whose hearts were tuned by the word of God to expect him, recognized him as such. And those who remained in their sin hated him and sought to push him to the edge of a cliff, which we'll read in a moment. Suffice it to say, the coming Savior will be recognized by his redemption but by more, by his reckoning. This is a powerful Savior who not only holds out hope for those who repent and believe, 
but consequences and, and judgment for those who don't. He would be recognized by a day of vengeance. This refers to the coming of the Lord or the day of the Lord, which is a concept through the prophets. Notice back again in Isaiah 61, verse 2. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. At the coming of the Lord, at the day of the Lord, we've often mentioned this through the course of the prophets. It's a theme in Scripture we need to understand. When the Lord comes at the appointment and the day of His choosing, when there's a reckoning and a visitation and an accounting for one standing before Him, it always falls out this way. It's the day of favor for those who are in covenant with Him. It's the day of vengeance for those who are not. And when Jesus came and began to preach the message of the kingdom, it was, as we said before, that sword that divided, in some cases, families because you either were the seed of the serpent or the seed of the woman. You're in his favor and welcome the voice of the Messiah and what his body hanging on that tree represented for you, the lamb slain, the second Adam, whose righteousness could be counted your own if you but put your face to him, uh, face toward him and lift up your eyes, your redemption drawing nigh. For those who refuse to recognize that, though, Jesus Christ represented a day of vengeance. When he died on that cross, there are those who wept before, who wept in, with the instrument of their cruel act in their hand, as I imagine, centurion, truly this man was the Son of God. At the same moment that rocks were split and a temple curtain was torn and the earth shook with the reality of what happened on that glorious day. This was prophesied. You will know the Messiah Melchizedek is here when he brings with himself a reckoning. This was prophesied in Isaiah 61 as a day of vengeance, the day of the Lord. And for those who are in him, the year of the Lord's favor. Favor. Isaiah goes on to characterize this in two ways. First, it's a restoration for those who were lost but are now in covenant bond with him. Verse 4 of these, he says, They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities and the devastations of many generations. From the landscape of exile, from the dispersion of the peoples, from the temporal judgments that had come and from the, uh, and from the awake of all of the discipline that the Lord had wreaked upon his people as a consequence of their sin, there was a promise that he would, reserve, he, that he would preserve from these dispersed peoples a remnant who would be rebuilt and regain their identity in him. And the Lord would build for himself, restore for himself a people, a priesthood, and a nation. Peter speaks of this fulfillment in terms of the gospel. But there's a second thing that this day of vengeance represents in verse 8. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them. So those who are in Christ and in covenant with Him have the assurance that those who are not will receive their due day in court. The court before a holy and omniscient and omnipotent God who loves His law and hates injustice. And on that reckoning day, there is an appointment either of punishment due to sin or salvation because someone, the Melchizedek Messiah, has taken that punishment for you. Let me read another passage from our ancient sermon that we're referencing today. Speaking of reckoning, the author of the coming Melchizedek message from ancient times says the following, And by his might he will judge God's holy ones 
and so establish a righteous kingdom. As it is written about him in the songs of David, a godlike being has taken his place in the counsel of God. In the midst of divine beings, he holds judgment. Psalm 82.1 Scripture also says, Scripture also says about him, quote, Over it, take your seat in the highest heaven. A divine being will judge the peoples. Psalm 7, 7 through 8. Concerning what Scripture says, quote, How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality with the wicked? Selah. Psalm 82.2 Then he goes to interpret. The interpretation applies to Belial and the spirits predestined to him. Another word for Satan. Because all of them have rebelled, turning from God's precepts, and so becoming utterly wicked. Listen to what he says. Therefore Melchizedek will thoroughly prosecute the vengeance required by God's statutes. Also he will deliver all the captives from the power of Belial, from the power of all the spirits destined to him. Allied with him will be all the righteous divine beings. Isaiah 61, 3. That is the divine, that is uh, the divine beings. There's some missing words in the scroll as it has suffered some wear decomposition over the years. Thus, in this example of an ancient sermon, the scholars recognized that, you will, that the Messiah, you will be able to recognize him by not just his redemption, but his reckoning. They understood that when Melchizedek, so to speak, comes, he will not only come bearing favor, but also bearing the rod of judgment. And he cites additional references to Isaiah 61, two of them, from the Psalms. The first is from Psalm 82. God has taken his place in the divine council, in the midst of the gods, lowercase g, which, by the way, represents authorities, those who presume to rule. He holds judgment. The true king takes his place in the courts of all human authority and rules with perfection and finality. It's a picture of Psalm 82. Furthermore, Psalm 7, 7 through 8, the Lord as judge is pictured there in the assembly of all the peoples. And so when he comes, it will be a decisive day indeed. It will be a day of reckoning and a day of salvation. It will be a day, as Isaiah put it, of restoration and a day of recompense, a repayment for those who refuse to turn from their sin. And this day, saints, was fulfilled. And record of this fulfillment, again, appears in Luke chapter 4. Turn back there with me. So here we have a prophecy of reckoning, an interpretation of that reckoning by an ancient sermon. Now let's look in the scriptures for the fulfillment of these words. Now, just to glean the context here, after Jesus has spoken and called out the peoples for their unbelief, no excuses, even though he's from Nazareth, they get angrier and angrier with him. Verse 28, when they heard these things, all the synagogue were filled with wrath. So these are enemies of Christ that reveal themselves at the first words of his ministry. What did they do? 29. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. I don't know if I've let myself imagine this scene very deeply until this week as I was studying, but imagine that a mob, pitchforks, torches, you know, we, that classic, you know, enraged um, villagers or something of that sort are screaming and foaming at the mouth, lost rationality, something like the inhabitants of Sodom. And what are they doing? They're screaming, they're yelling, and they're chasing Jesus Christ himself, driving him out of their town 
and bringing him, purposefully hurting him like an animal to the brow of a cliff so that they could throw him down. Are they successful? They are not. Why? Because Jesus is not subject to the will and whim of men unless the Father grants that he die at their hands. But this is according to a sovereign and predestined plan. Verse 30, but passing through their midst, he went away. How did he just all of a sudden walk through the midst of this enraged mob, having lost all reasoning, seeking to throw him off the cliff? It's because he was their judge. It's because for the same reason he told his disciples, do you not know that I could say a word and a legion of angels will defend me? It's the same thing. It's the same truth that he confessed before Pilate when he said you would have no authority unless it had been given to you by my Father. Thus these people had no power to touch a hair on Jesus' head. And he demonstrated as much when he walked straight through them. Now Jesus' testimony of reckoning authority continues. And in his first miracles recorded in Luke, what does he do? Well, he goes down from Capernaum to the city of Galilee where he is teaching. Verse 33, And in a synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. He cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. So notice, Jesus has angered the humans and he's angered the spirit world. What does Jesus do in both cases? He demonstrates his sovereign reckoning authority. Verse 35, But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, come out of him. And the demon had thrown him down in their midst. He came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out through every place in the surrounding region. And then if you continue to read, he goes straight from there to heal some uh, to, to heal uh, Simon's mother-in-law, who is ill with a high fever. So Jesus demonstrates his sovereign reckoning authority over human beings, over the spirit realm, and over the curse of the fall in his first three recorded miracles in the book of Luke. Who is this? This is the day of vengeance, the day of favor. This is the Melchizedek foreshadowed of old. This is the coming Savior proclaimed in Isaiah 61. And we recognize him by his redemption and his reckoning power. Number three, we recognize him by his anointing. Going back to our primary text, again, the anointing of Jesus Christ was prophesied in verse 1. Isaiah 61, 1, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. So we will recognize the Messiah by his anointing. The year of the Lord's favor will come with an obvious enabling and a power that is granted an ability to accomplish the Lord's will that will attend this Melchizedek Savior, if you will. This was prophesied in Isaiah 61.1. I do have a question for you kids today. I was wondering if you could tell us what offices required anointing in the Bible. So, you know, someone would go, would go out and they would anoint someone if they were going to be a king. a king. Very good. So kings would be anointed. What's another office? People would be anointed if they were going to be a priest. A priest. Very good. 
So there are two examples, and that concept of anointing, I would argue, it would extend to prophet as well. So in the anointing of Jesus, you see this relationship, this Melchizedekian figure of old. The anointing of the Savior to come would fulfill all these typological roles perfectly. He would be anointed. Anointing represents singled out by another authority. It's an acknowledgement of calling or purpose by the sovereign. So the Lord, as it were, pours out that anointing oil as a symbol in that ceremony to say, I certify that this individual is called for the task to which I appoint him. But that anointing is more than that too. It's the actual ability to perform the task at hand. So when a prophet was anointed, he would literally hear in the Old Testament the word of God. And inspired by the Holy Spirit, he would speak the infallible truth of God's word when he was speaking within the office of prophet. And so it was with other miracles as well. And chiefly, of course, Jesus Christ. We recognize him as having an anointing above all others. Was he not anointed as Savior and healer? And obviously so, when he cast out demons who obeyed his word of command, when he raised the dead, when he healed the sick, when he opened the eyes of the blind, when he stood upon the raging sea, when he spoke a word and calmed the raging storm? Absolutely. The anointing of the Messiah was obvious in every single miracle that Jesus performed. Notice back in Isaiah 61, these words, this prophecy presupposes the nature of Christ, not just as sovereign enabling, but also as incarnate, God made flesh, and the Trinity as well. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, me, the Messiah, speaking, and the Spirit of the Lord God, God the Father, as alighted or as rested, as indwelling, as it were, the God the Son, so as to accomplish the anointing, the divine enabling to bring good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives. Let me read again from our ancient sermon text. I just love this. So the author of this ancient scroll continues, The visitation is the day of salvation that he has decreed through Isaiah the prophet concerning all the captives, inasmuch the scripture says, quote, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of the messengers who announce peace. Who bring, or the messenger who announces peace, who brings good news, who announces salvation, who says to Zion, your divine being reigns, Isaiah 52, 7. The scripture's interpretation, quote, the mountains are the prophets. They, are they who were sent to proclaim God's truth and to prophesy to all Israel. The messengers is the anointed of the spirit of whom Daniel spoke. After the 62 weeks, an anointed shall be cut off, Daniel 9, 26. The messenger who brings good news, who announces salvation, is the one of whom it is written, quote, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, Isaiah 61, 2. Again, with reference to our primary text and additional references, this ancient sermon held out hope that a Messiah, Melchizedek figure, would come that would fulfill all these glorious promises. Among them, Daniel 9, 24, and 26 through 27 spoke of a coming Savior who, among other things, will put an end to sin, atone for iniquity, bring everlasting righteousness, who would be the anointed one and would be cut off to redeem his people. Amazing. You see, just to illustrate the sufficiency of God's word and the unity of all the scriptures, for those who really set their mind to understand 
what the Old Testament text said, although they would not have anywhere close to the understanding with the fullness of canon, nevertheless, there was sufficient truth, I believe, that servant testifies to expect the Messiah and what he would be like and who he was when he came. The hearts of perhaps the author of this ancient sermon, the, the heart of this ancient uh, author of this ancient sermon, was perhaps awakened by the Spirit and the Scriptures to understand that those who are alive at his appearing will know him by his redemption, by his reckoning, and by his anointing. This, of course, anointing was fulfilled in Luke chapter 3. Turning there again, our back and forth, and after this we'll have one more back and forth, and then we will conclude. When did this anointing happen? Luke 3, again, recording the beginning of Jesus' ministry. His purpose for the incarnation is unfolding. It begins this way in Luke 3, 21. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus, Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. So I submit that the baptism of Jesus Christ was something like an anointing ceremony. The three persons of the Trinity involved in this commissioning of the incarnate Son to fulfill the a cause of the gospel that had been predestined by God from ages past and was now taking place in the fullness of time. You have God the Father pouring out His anointing, so to speak, in the form of the Spirit, who then indwells His Son, and then His Son goes forth. And how does He go forth? Chapter 4, verse 1 says it this way, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned to the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted of the devil. You see that? The anointing or the enabling, the initiation of Jesus' ministry at his baptism then led him to be tempted of the devil in this probation or testing time where he would fulfill the law perfectly and thus secure the righteousness that would be imputed to us. Furthermore, verse 14, Luke continues to record, And Jesus returned, how? In the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And the report about him went out through all the surrounding county. And for those with eyes to see, what is that report? This is the anointed one. The Spirit is obviously with him. We see it in power, in his miracles, in his teaching, in his authority, and in too many ways, in so many ways I can't express. Just come see him yourself. And so those with eyes to see came to see the anointed one, who is full of the Spirit and was walking in the power of the Spirit and fulfilling his calling and purpose in the incarnation. Thus, the coming Savior will be recognized, and he was, by his redemption, his reckoning, his anointing, and finally, his revelation. Isaiah 61, back in our primary text, verse 2, what would Jesus do? Well, verse 1b, he will proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Verse 2, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. So it was prophesied that Jesus would reveal the inauguration, of, if you will, or reveal the new covenant. A new page in history would turn with the coming of Christ. Isaiah prophesied that, that he would proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. In other words, all history would hinge upon Christ's words. And the lowly and the proud, if they would bow and repent, would hear the message of the gospel, 
And he has come to bind up those who are lost in sin, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to bring that good news to the poor. As we were proclaiming from this pulpit recently, as we read in Luke chapter 2, that glorious proclamation where the heavenlies were filled by those angel messengers, they surely did in that Christmas night go to the poor, to the shepherds, to the outcasts, and proclaim the good news. The good news of Jesus was proclaimed at his birth by these angel emissaries, fulfilling in part Isaiah 61 and Psalm 148, as we've been studying. Liberty is here for the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Hear this good news, you poor. And mostly this would refer, of course, to those Jesus would have gone to say who are poor in spirit, understanding their desperate need of a Savior. Those are the ones who recognize the redemption, the reckoning, the anointing and revelation of the Messiah. Isaiah 61 goes on to describe in verse 6 that these people who are made known, they understand by the Spirit, the revelation of Jesus Christ, they receive a new identity. You should be called priests of the Lord, and they shall speak of you as ministers of our God. Uh, furthermore, in verse nine, 8 and 9, it says, I will make an everlasting covenant with them, their offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them, that they are the offspring, that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. So as this revelation occurs to his people, they are transformed. They are made holy and they are consecrated as priests to the Lord its God. And their testimony then goes forth. That is to say, the proclamation that they heard now becomes their own cause and call as they fulfill the Great Commission. So the ancient sermon writer, again, not canon, but a great illustration of an interpretation of these texts, closes his sermon with the following words. This scripture is scripture's interpretation. He is to instruct them about all periods of history for eternity. So you see the author here is saying that Jesus will give us an understanding of redemptive history, if you will. Then he continues, and in the statutes of the truth, that, and dominion that passes from Belial and returns to the sons of light by the judgment of God, as it is written concerning him, who says to Zion, your divine being reigns, Isaiah 52, 7. Zion is the congregation of all the sons of righteousness who uphold the covenant and turn from walking in the way of the people. Your divine being is Melchizedek, who will deliver them from the power of Belial. Concerning what scripture says, quote, then you shall have the trumpet sounded loud, in the seventh month, Leviticus 25.9. So this final citation from this ancient sermon, as I have characterized it, holds out hope of a trumpet blast, referring to the, year of, or the day of atonement in the year of Jubilee related ideas from Leviticus 25.9. On that glorious day when debts were forgiven and the promise of atonement was symbolized in the covenant of old and in those ceremonies, a trumpet would sound heralding the truth that you are forgiven. Thus, this trumpet blast would be heard, the scriptures foretold and prefigured and foreshadowed when the Messiah would come. And the author of this ancient sermon somehow knew this. Well, I'll tell you how. He knew it by taking seriously the word of God. There would be a Melchizedek Savior to come, as it were, who would fulfill the word of God and reveal it in more depth still to his followers. And when was this fulfilled? One final reference for us this morning in Luke chapter 4. 
Back to the fulfillment text. As Luke continues to record the beginning of Jesus' ministry, we're reminded as we opened the first point with that he identifies Isaiah 61 as a prophecy of himself. The Spirit is upon him and has anointed him for his task. And what is his task? To proclaim good news to the poor. And this is exactly what he did. Chapter 4 of Luke's, gospel, uh, of Luke's gospel closes here in 42 and following with these words. And when it was day, he, Jesus, departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have him kept from leaving them. But he, Jesus, said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. And as he did so, with every word of Jesus proclaimed, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, he was fulfilling Isaiah 61, proclaiming the good news to the poor in spirit, if you will. As he went forth with this message, he was fulfilling his purpose for which he was anointed, to proclaim the year of salvation. And what gave him the right and authority to do so? God had anointed the second person of the Trinity to take on flesh, to become a man. He was the coming Savior. And with every word from his mouth and every work that he accomplished in his miracles, he proved that he was the one with redemption, with reckoning, with anointing, and revelation within his grasp. And this was proclaimed of old with a trumpet blast. Those ancient trumpets, much like church bells, in more recent times, are a herald call, a call to attention, a call to worship. There is a sound that goes forth throughout all the land. It's a sound of joy for those who are in the covenant. Your debts are forgiven. It's a year of jubilee. Celebrate. It's the day of atonement. But that message, if you're a hold up in Jericho behind the walls of your sin and man's means of salvation, means your fortress is going to fall. That's the difference that trumpets make. Those who are outside of the covenant, it signals their doom. For those who are in the year, recognize the year of the Lord's favor, it's a call to worship Him because He has gloriously saved you from your sins. When Jesus went forth proclaiming the news of the kingdom, it was a trumpet blast. And it was preceded by a trumpet blast from glory. One of my favorite sermon series that occurred to me in years past, I think I did it for an Advent series, was called Heaven's Loudspeaker. And it simply chronicled those several times in the Gospels where God the Father's voice from heaven was physically audible to people on earth. What was this? It was, this was the trumpet blast from glory announcing the true day, the consummate day of atonement. The shepherds heard it from the angels. The people at Christ's baptism heard it from the heavenlies as well. Others heard it as well. And we saints have heard it in the Gospel. One of the great privileges of being born again, of being Christ's own, as we are given much the same calling. Does not Jesus himself say in Matthew 28, go now therefore and proclaim the news of the kingdom, make disciples of all nations, teaching them everything that I have commanded you, I will be with you to the end of the age. Let us take up this call, saints. We take up this call when we recognize the Messiah. Have you recognized him? Do you recognize Christ as your redeemer? Do you know he has reckoning power? Do you understand him as the anointed one of God who has come, fulfilling the ancient words? Have you received his revelation? Even the simple gospel, repent and believe? If you have, join me in the cause of proclaiming that good news. And when we do, we join the saints of old too. 
the shepherds that went and told it on the mountain as we've sung today. Let us close in prayer that God would help us toward this end. Father, we thank you for the glorious truth of the gospel. We thank you for the amazing revelation that you have given us through your very words recorded for us by those inspired by the Holy Spirit. We pray, Lord, that you would equip and encourage us in that same call for those that know you. For those that do not, if there are any in the sound of this message who have not turned from their sin and believed, I pray that the message of Christ would go forth like a trumpet blast to their soul, striking first in their hearts fear. Firstly, that you have recompense within your hands, and secondly, fear of you, that in Christ is deliverance by his blood and by his work on Calvary. Lord, I pray that if there are any who hear this and repent and believe, that they would soon join us in worshiping you, so that every week when we gather, we remember and obey the call to give you the glory you deserve because of what you have done in your great advent. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.